Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why are monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the dark? Why do animals not understand you? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's edition of Ask the Naked Scientists with Dave Ansell and with me, Matt Jamison. We'll start off with a bit of news that you've got, I believe. Yes. Um, you know, you've heard, might have heard the story recently that um, conventional light bulbs are being outlawed virtually in the EU. They're being phased out, aren't they? Yeah, they're trying to discourage you from using them. So mm. you use something, uh, some of these com- compact fluorescents, which are yeah. more efficient. Um, well, they look really ugly, though, don't they? They're kind of ugly. Yeah. Um, people moan that they take a long time to turn on, especially mm. when it's cold, because you've got actually some mercury vapour in there and it's got to evaporate and oh, it takes a while to warm up. Um, but there's a professor in Cambridge just down the road who's coming up with what might be the next thing after that. Um, you may come across LEDs. Yes. The, the, the little, often the little coloured lights in um, stereos. There's a couple here, look. They're flashing while we talk. Around. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. And the more modern ones are the white ones, which you might have as bike lights and mm. some modern torches. The problem is they're actually really quite expensive still. To get a white LED, I mean, if you, and they're sort of like 80, 90 pence each, which and they're not very powerful. And if you want to actually light a room with them, it's going to cost you an absolute fortune. So Colin, Professor Colin, Humph- Colin Humphreys down the road um, has worked out a way around this problem. The problem is that you've got to use a material gallium nitride to make them out of, and you've got to grow that on something. Normally, so far up till now, the only thing they can grow it on is sapphire, because if you try and grow it on silicon, which is a dirt-cheap thing which your computers are made out of, mm-hmm. um, you, heat, you heat it up to 1,000 degrees, you grow the gallium nitride, when as it cools, the gallium nitride shrinks quicker than the silicon, and it cracks all over the place, and you've just got a mess. Um, and so you have to use um, sapphire, which unsurprisingly is rather expensive, costing thousands of quid for every um, sort of probably tens of thousands of pounds for every wafer to, which you're going to grow the stuff on. Um, but he's come up with a way if you put a layer of something called aluminium gallium nitride in between the silicon and the gallium nitride, it'll all just about grow all right. And so you can, should be able to knock out the white LEDs far, far cheaper. How long is this going to take him? Because we need them now. <laughs> we do need them now. Like yesterday. Uh, he, he's just started, uh, started a project with a company up in County Durham to actually start making these things. Right. I think it's probably a couple of years until he starts making them and then at least a couple more before they get cheap enough to actually turn up in your house. How do they become cheaper? I mean, what's the actual science of becoming cheaper? Is it a lot demand? Of, a lot of it's, um, it costs a certain amount to build a factory, and it costs a bit more to build a factory ten times the size, but not ten times as much. Right, yeah. And slowly you also, uh, engineers, look at something and optimise everything they discover. Actually, you don't need those five steps, which take ages and are expensive, mm. if we do these other two, which are far easier. Um, most of it's producing lots of things, and some of it's just time and working out ways to get round expensive So things. these LED lights, could they um, eventually phase out the ugly-looking things we're all being told to use to save energy now? Um, probably. In, in theory, you can get them more efficient than a compact fluorescent light bulb, right. and you can certainly tune what colour they are so you right. don't get this, some of the strange colour effects you get with compact fluorescents. Yeah. Um, and they turn on immediately. So that's one thing which everyone moans about, and it would certainly solve that problem. And, of course, in 10 years' time, we'll all be saying, what was the 100 watt, the 60 watt? Yeah, (laughs) I would have thought so. Would these LEDs not have wattages? They would have wattages, but it's about a tenth of the amount. 
Right, so, so, I mean, if an all compact fluorescence about yeah. a seventh of the amount of a normal light bulb. So. Wow. Fascinating stuff. It's always fascinating stuff when you come in. Um, now, the question comes in from Bob in Colchester, Dave. You ready for this? Okay. Uh, trains have got steel wheels. How much of the wheel is on the track point of contact? And how uh, do they generate the friction to make the train move? Exact numbers of what area is in contact in a steel wheel, I couldn't give you. Um, it's very small. It's certainly probably only a few square millimetres, if that. It's basically because steel is very, very hard stuff. And so it would be uh, wheels round, the trail's approximately flat. So it's the area of contact is going to be to do with how much the wheel can distort the track. So it's going to be very tiny, far, far less than the. Uh, equivalent wheel made out of rubber or whatever how can it produce enough friction to push a train along um most the kind of a lot of friction um it works in a way which isaac newton worked out which is that the amount of force the amount of frictional force you can get is proportional to the area which is touching and the pressure which is being applied over that area so if you make the area smaller, if you've got the same weight of train, the same force going down, the pressure is going to increase. So the friction should be the same. So it doesn't really it doesn't matter what area of steel is touching the rails, because if the area gets smaller, then you've got more force over a smaller area, so more pressure. So the amount of friction per unit area is greater so it exactly cancels out so you get the same friction um whatever the area because you've got the same force pushing down um friction is quite complicated it wor- it works like that quite often when things are sitting still um when they start sliding all hell breaks loose and uh, everything gets more complicated normally friction's less when it, you're sliding than when you're stationary um if you if you're if you probably noticed this all the car programs if you start skits um if you brake and your wheels start skidding on a, in the car you're supposed to take your foot off the brake and let the wheels catch up with the road again and then apply the brake again slowly because you get more friction when the surface of the wheels is actually um stationary on the floor than when it's sliding we hope that's answered your question, uh, Bob in Colchester. And Paul is on the phone. Hello, Paul. Uh, whereabouts are you tonight? Buckingham or Gorkut, just outside thereof. Oh, lovely to hear from you. And your questions about LED lights, you're through to Dr Dave. Yeah, I'm curious about this. You're talking about growing, obviously, that the, the crystal is required on a substrate, which traditionally is on, on sapphire, because yeah. it's expensive. Is it just restricted to the white LEDs, or could we grow red, green, and blue ones on a traditional substrate that doesn't involve the use of expensive um, minerals such as sapphire, and then bundle them all together in clusters and get an artificial white light and use a diffuser to make it look reasonably white to the user? You certainly can make um, red, green, yellow LEDs using other non without using gallium nitride. Uh, I think um, gallium arsenide was quite a common material. Yeah, it was. Well, semiconductors are similar. Yeah, uh, um, slightly different properties, but okay. you couldn't get the blue until very recently. Just because it's doped or something, I'm guessing. Um, I think what's cool um basically the band gap which is a um the bigger you've got electrons 
and um, in in certain substances they can have two two different energies, and the gap between the two what isn't uh, and the bigger the gap, the bluer the light you can produce. Right. And I don't think the band gap was big enough in um, Gallimard slide to make blue light. Okay. Also, I think the energy in the blue light tended to blow it apart. So it basically so much energy in blue light that it actually would damage crystal yeah, structure. Sense, yeah, because higher frequency or shorter wavelength. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yes, you could. I mean, I mean, in many ways, uh, they're trying to make LED TVs. You actually get LED displays as one of them That's at King's the Cross Station. That's the organic they're talking about, isn't it? Um, they want it for monitors. They are use. They do have displays with like conventional LEDs. Um, like I think there's one at King's Cross Station. I don't know if you've seen it. Great, huge, great sort of ten or twenty foot diagonal yeah. display. That's all LEDs. That's, those those are orange LEDs, aren't they? There's little groups of three, sort of right. red, green, blue. Yeah, is that is that to light the TFT panel, or is that actually producing the image actively? I think that's actually producing the image. It's very low yeah. resolution because okay. each pixel's sort of 10 millimetres across or whatever, but if you're, you're, you're a long way away, that's yeah. fine. Um, if you're trying to get it onto an actual monitor, then the LED ones, they're talking about using plastics to make or make the LEDs instead. So you build the whole lot as one lump, a whole panel? Yeah, yeah okay. um, you sort of inkjet print it on. Right. But yes, I mean, I, in theory you could. I guess it um, would be expensive and you've got to sort of move all the parts which are made in different processes all into one place to make a, a white thing with a diffuser on the front. And if nothing else, just moving things around with robots is probably relatively expensive compared... On that scale, yeah. If you're trying to make millions of them. Yeah. Uh, do you still have a series resistor with LEDs like we learnt traditionally in, in electronics? Because you can't put one big one, otherwise the first one that lights up sinks all the current and it goes bang and the rest stay <laughs> dark. Um, yes, LEDs have got... Um, unlike a normal resistor, whereby the, high, the higher the voltage, the more cu- current you get through... And so if you want to put more current in, you've got to put higher voltage in, and it's very stable because you put a bit more voltage in, you get a bit more current. Yeah. LEDs, that has a period whereby you apply more voltage and you get no current no at all. Current, then then all of a sudden zero, it's got almost it? no resistance, and so you just got slightly more current in that. Yeah, more voltage up, you get a huge current, yeah. and you fry the device. And yeah, yeah LEDs are still fundamentally like that. One. Actually, the voltage, that first voltage is different with different colours, things with shorter wavelengths. Red LEDs have got a lower voltage than blue, which need a higher voltage because okay. there's more energy in each each lump of light, each photon. OK, so you could have pairs on turn back-to-back so you can light on both halves of the, the cycle, presumably, if it's in a... If, um, you'd probably have... If, you, um, if you're trying to plug LEDs into the mains, you'd have some kind of clever electronics to play with the voltage... Because the intrinsic voltage of an LED, um, even if it's blue light, is about 4 volts, yeah. whereas mains 240, is 240 volts. So you need something to convert the voltage. But you could um, use both halves you, of the cycle. You could use both halves of the cycle. Um, you're still talking far more volts than yeah. you'd want. So you need something, uh, yeah. to either transformer or some clever piece of um, active electronics to convert the voltage to one which, is, uh, which you need. So, so in conclusion, is, is it worth it? Because the, the manufacturing cost, and if it's about the environment, I'm not sure we need to concern that much. But a different argument. The, the end of life of these things, in gallium arsenide, there, there's, there's some nasty compounds using it. You've got to, at some point they die after X years. Yeah. Is it worth it as a net cost? Um, gallium arsenide, yeah. There's very, very little gallium arsenide in each LED. Um, I think just from the white ones, um, Colin Humphreys was talking about on a 
sort of 12 inch wafer you can get 150,000 LEDs um, and if you're growing gallium nitride on a layer of silicon um, then you're only got a result there's no arsenic in it um, so there's not a lot it's not less poisonous than gallium arsenide but still very little not not, not to worry about so, yeah not enough to worry okay. about far less than the mercury in a compact fluorescent Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, the other thing, mercury and compact fluorescence, no one's thought about that, have they? Or to any People do think about it. Um, I think at the moment there were, there's probably... It's, a, it's always a balance of two evils. Um, and I think at the moment the energy which conventional light bulb uses is more evil than the mercury which a compact fluorescent will release that, at the end of its life. That's sort of meant to believe. That, that, that's a good answer. Now I'm going to do that. Good. <laughs> Cheers. Are you happy with that, Paul? I'll have to do for one night, wouldn't yeah. I? I've got to take a deep breath now. <laughs> thanks for calling. OK, thanks very much. Cheers now. couple coming in here first of all uh we all miss concord and well maybe not all of us but a bit of a broad brush there but uh, some of us miss concord um and mark wants to know if you went on concord you were traveling twice the speed of sound if that is the case how would you be able to communicate how do people communicate on concord it's an interesting question the simple answer is that you're not going at twice the speed of sound compared to the air around you so the air in Concorde is moving at twice the speed of sound, almost exactly the same speed as you. Mm. So it just travel. So you can talk to someone else as if I'm talking as if I'm talking to you, Mark. Yeah. Um, if we put the air in a box and we made it move at twice the speed of sound, ten times the speed of sound, um, it doesn't really matter because the air is moving is stationary compared to us. So sound will um, move normally. The interesting thing is what would happen is if you stuck your head out the window and started shouting. Apart from breaking your neck. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be a good idea, I think. It's probably not, not one to um, experiment. Um, we don't recommend you try this at home. <laughs> yes, don't try this next time you travel on a oh. supersonic aircraft. Because if you stick your head out, out the window and shouted and someone was in front of the plane uh, and then you were heading towards them, then you'd get there before the sound did because mm. then you're trying to shout in um, air which is stationary and you're shouting and you're moving faster than the speed of sound. So all of your... Um, the shouting can only move forward at the speed of sound, so you would actually overtake your the sound you make, and you'd be shouting. You go past, and then they might hear you later if they could hear you underneath all the jet engines. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, this had an interesting effect with the V two um, bombs during the war. Oh right, They're the big rockets which the Germans launched at London. Mm. In fact, they made a really strange sound because they were basically a big b- ballistic rocket. They get launched up, then come down like, supersonically and come into London. So if you were near where one hit, you'd hear the explosion and you'd hear a strange backwards noise of them coming down through the air because they'd get there first and then the sound would catch up later. That's very clever. <laughs> it wasn't necessarily the reason why the Germans built them. No, <laughs> and we don't recommend you try that either. <laughs> no, don't, don't uh, this, is all, this is all theoretical science we're talking about. Please don't you know, start putting your fairy bottles together or anything. Uh, Ronnie Maxwell says, I held a CD up to our kitchen light to try and catch the spectrum. Uh, this is supposed to be white light, but is it the same as daylight? I saw red, orange, yellow, green, magenta, cyan, blue, or indigo, she says, and one violet. I understood that you couldn't see magenta in a spectrum. You shouldn't be able to see what true magenta is. Um, magenta is essentially what happens if you um, take away green light from white light. Um, sort of greeny colours from white light. So it's a mixture of red and blue. 
you can have a um, in the spectrum. Um, there's a whole infinite number of different colours. They sort of range from red at the long wavelength end through oranges, yellows, greens, um, turquoisey colours. Then you get blues and some indigoey violet colours. Um, and the indigoey violets are quite dark, quite bluey sort of purples. Um, now you can't you shouldn't be able to make a magenta which is a mixture of red and blue um you've got your eyes your eyes have got three different sensors in them a red red sensor a green sensor and a blue sensor um the way in fact the way you feel the way you actually um understand color is like is quite complicated and i've got into trouble with this before um but um to, but to simplest approximation you've got three cent you've got three sensors some people seem to have four um but no one's quite sure whether they can see whether they see the world in a different way other people have only two and then they're color and they're what you call color blind if you haven't oh, got a red one and a green one then you can't tell the difference between red and green so you're called you're red green color blind some people are also missing the blue, and so they wouldn't be able to see blue colours that would be able to tell the difference between red and green. Um, is that genetic? Th- uh, that is genetic. Mm. Um, you're basically just... You've got um, the three different colour sensors are actually three different pigments in different cells in the back of your... in the retina in the back of your eye. And some people don't have the gene to make one of the proteins to make one of the um, pigments which absorb the light. And so they, they're just missing one of the light sensors. Mm. Right. In fact, most... A lot of mammals are red-green colour blind. Uh, primates and a few others. It's a mutation from the um, I think green is a mutation from the red, or vice versa. Um, and so dogs can't tell a red um, red ball in a green grass very well because they don't have, they can't tell the difference. Um, but magenta should be a mixture of blue and uh, should be triggering both the blue sensor in the back of your eye and the red. And there's no single wavelength, no single color of rainbow light which can do that. I would have thought if you're seeing magenta in a CD, it might be that um, you're getting overlap because you're actually. I mean, if you look in a CD, you see, if you're especially looking quite close to the light, light a light bulb, um, you see a rainbow. But you actually, what you actually see is a, it looks like a rainbow. What you're actually seeing is different pictures of the light which you're looking at. Right. Um, but each color ends up in a slightly is it different reflection? place. Um, it's a strange kind of reflection. Mm-hmm. Um, it's because there's two different depths. You've got two reflections because you've got pits on the CD. You've got the top of the pits and the bottom of the pits, and you get a different reflection off the top. You get two right. reflections, one off the top and one off the bottom. Which is why if you wave it, they go different. Dif- and if you've got so you get two, di- the light's a wave, and you get two different waves coming off it. He's looking at one now. And they're two very, very it's close together. It's- you shouldn't be able to get um, red and blue with a single wavelength of light mixture to make magenta with a single wavelength of light but you could be able to do it You're, you might be able to do it because the two images are overlapping um, the way a CD gives you the different colours is that you're getting two reflections, one off the bottom of the pits one off the top and lights are waves so you get two reflections, two waves coming off and in some directions the two reflections for, for a certain colour in some directions the two reflections will add together and make it brighter and others they'll cancel each other out and make it darker but the angle at which that happens is different for different colours so the image of the light appears in different places for different colours because it changes at a different angle. We hope one of that's answered your question. Uh, Joanne has a question for us, and good evening to you. Good evening, sir. How are you? I'm very well. Where are you calling from tonight, Joanne? I'm calling from near Norwich. Oh, right. A little place called Saul, if you want the honest truth. (laughs) Uh, You're through to uh, Dr. Dave. What's your question tonight? Well, but my answer is, uh, question is really about these horrible little bulbs we're supposed to be having. Mm. Um, 
I find that they don't get a lot of light. And plus the fact, I thought I got rid of the migraines and headaches and whatnot, but since I've been using these, they, I've got them back again. Is there any reason why? Um, they, they do flash more than a conventional light bulb. Ah. Um, because normal um, electricity, um, AC electricity, alternating current is going backwards and forwards at 50 times a second. Mm. Um, and um, so and a normal light bulb will actually flash at 50 times a second, um, a conventional one. Um, but basically, when you put more current in it, it heats up a bit more, it gets a bit brighter. And it takes a while to cool, to cool down again. Mm. By that type point, you've got more current coming back again, so it doesn't flash very much. Um, a fluorescent light bulb will turn on and off quicker, so the flash is definitely more significant than an ordinary light bulb. I have heard other people having problems with sort of migraines, and um, due to the, the flashing, it's faster than it does you can actually see. make it very difficult. And uh, today, for instance, um, there, there hasn't been a lot of light with me, so I've got my lights on, and it has made it worse. You know, yeah. and there's not enough light. Even to try and read with glasses and whatnot, I just in the end I give up. Um, I think sometimes I, I def- with the flashing, I think there are different versions of the compact fluorescent light bulbs, mm. and I I wouldn't say for certain, but I think they have got better over the years. And the very cheap ones, which you can get for sort of fifty p in a supermarket, are probably the older versions. And definitely the newer ones do turn on quicker. I don't try the cheaper version. <laughs> Thank you, bye. Uh, Joanne there on the phone. And another question, just going back to the CD uh, situation, Dave, uh, from Nick Hall uh, from Alberta in Canada. He says, when I copy a scrap CD to a new writable compact disc, all of his own material, of course, uh, the new CD seems to work perfectly, doesn't skip or have corrupt data. Um, why would the CD burner be able to read information that my CD player is not able to? And as a sub-question to that, sometimes when I... Um, uh, dub things onto my uh, iTunes or, or whatever you know, sort of hard disk you're, yeah. you're using. It, it eliminates those those skips. How the does skip. it do that? Um, a CD has actually got some quite sophisticated what's called error correcting codes in it. Um, it doesn't just write all of the data once. Um, it actually adds some extra data in there. So if you've got sort of um, everything's convert, all of the audio is converted into numbers um, when you digitise something, and then so the amount of the, um, sound pressure. So basically, the sound is converted into whole string of numbers, um, and then you could just put that straight on the CD. But then if something got scratched, um, you'd have a hole in the numbers. You'd have a gap. It would jump. And that's all that definitely old-fashioned um, CD players can deal with. However, actually, there's extra information in there which the which a computer can use to reconstitute, um, which put it back. Um, use if there's a hole, it can use that extra information to mend that hole. So, if the, up to a certain amount, if it's too scratched, there isn't enough information there, even with the extra bits. It becomes a coaster. It turns into a coaster. Um, but there is a stage whereby a conventional CD player won't be able to play it, but a computer, or in fact the ones you get in cars, because they can use this extra information which is there to put it back together again and fix the gaps. And it can rewrite the CD make it fi- and make it fine. In fact, they were, they were trying to take a, um, some rather, I don't know whether you call them unpleasant or not, um, Radio um, music companies were using this in order to stop people copying them in the computers. Because what they'd do is they'd put the first set of uh, information put completely correct, 
but then the extra error correcting stuff they'd put garbage in it so the computer would get really confused because it tried to be using error correcting data at the end to fix the audio which wasn't broken in the first place and it would actually cause complete havoc with it yeah. and it would say this, this cd doesn't compute and so if you tried to copy it or play it on a computer it wouldn't work or in fact it wouldn't work if you played it in a car stereo either um but if you played it on a conventional bog standard um audio cd, CD player. player it isn't intelligent enough to try and fix the problems so it would play straight through um i think after a while every, because so many people play cds and computers and cars yeah. they started had so much of an uproar about it that everyone uh, they gently shelved the product and is it, is it the case, um, while we're on uh, CDs and, and music, that um, they've always been able to, to write data on both sides but just haven't? It's normally like a sort of greatest hits or something like that. You know, you now have the whole thing on one CD. There's no fundamental reason why you couldn't. Uh, a CD is basically, a um, conventional CD, uh, two bits of plastic sandwiching a very thin layer of aluminium, and that aluminium's been stamped on a stamp, and so it's got lots of pits in it, and that, those pits have got the information. Right. There's no reason, fundamental reason why you couldn't put another layer of plastic mm. and then another sheet of aluminium, and which you can read from the other side. Um, so there's no fundamental reason why not. They may, it may only have got cheap recently, or they may only have bothered recently. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can send The Naked Scientists your questions by email. Chris at thenakedscientists.com is the address to write to. And if you want to find out more about The Naked Scientists, then drop by our website, nakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by The Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.